Hi friends, Merry Christmas. It's great to see you as we continue our series this Christmas season that we're calling Expectant, a feeling that something is about to happen. My name is Dave and in this series what we're doing is we're talking about what does it look like to live expectantly? What does it look like for us to live in a way where we know and anticipate that God will show up to accomplish his plans and his purposes in his world. And today I want to dive into what I believe is the heart of the Christmas story. It's a scripture passage that you've undoubtedly heard many times before, but my hope today is that you'll hear this story in in a new way, a fresh way, in a way that might take you beyond Christmas carols and Christmas cookies and Christmas festivities into the radical and subversive message of Christmas that is this, our King has come. So if you have a Bible, grab it, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, that's where we're going to be today, and I'm going to pray and then we'll dive right in. Father, today we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word in our lives that you would help us to receive the message that you have for us, that this Christmas season, Lord, would not just be a time of going through holiday traditions, Lord, but that you would use use it to remind us of who you are, that you'd use it to, to change us and shape us, give us faith and courage and hope in this world that we live in. We thank you, Lord, for the ability to be your people. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the the ability to gather together online and open your word and learn from you. So God, we invite you, change us, meet us, shape us, and transform us today. That's our prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Gaius Octavius Born September 23rd, 63 BC, was a gifted, intelligent, naturally charismatic leader. In fact, when he was 16 years old, the famous Roman orator Cicero said this about him. He's a talented young man who should be praised, honored, and eliminated. In other words, this kid had so much giftedness and ability that he was seen as a really big threat to really powerful people in really powerful places. This was especially true because Octavius had connections. Specifically, he was the grand nephew of the great Julius Caesar. And Julius loved and adored Gaius so much that in 43 BC, he adopted him and made him heir to the entire Roman Empire when he was only 20 years old. Then, about a year later, not long after his adoption, Julius Caesar was murdered. Through a series of of events, civil wars, internal struggles for power, suddenly Gaius Octavius became the emperor of the largest and most powerful empire this world has ever known. Under his rule, the empire grew. It went as far north as England, as far east as Asia, even south into Africa. It covered over three million square miles. And when you consider in the ancient world, travel was tedious and communication extremely limited. This was an enormous feat. By 27 BC, Emperor Octavius had become so powerful that the Roman Senate issued him a new name. Caesar Augustus the supreme, majestic, 
revered one. And this, friends, was a big moment. This was a significant move because up until this point, the title Augustus had only been used to refer to gods. And so what historians tell us is that the tradition of worshiping the Roman Caesars as gods all grew out of this one moment. This moment when Octavius receives this title, this name, Caesar Augustus, the man who rules like a god. And so the gospel writer and historian Luke very intentionally begins his telling of the Christmas story with these specific words. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. You see, Luke right away is telling us that this story is set at a time and in a place when a worldly empire seemed to be calling the shots. When a king and his kingdom seemed to dominate everything that was happening in human history. And friends, as Luke writes this story, it's as if he's saying to us, but wait and watch what happens next. Now things are going to get interesting. Now we'll find out who is really in control. Now we're going to figure out who is truly running the show. Friends, here's point one. To live expectantly is to know that there is not a king or a kingdom or empire or party or power in this world that has ultimate control of human history. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. So the setting for our story today is a powerful Caesar leading a powerful empire and in this moment taking stock of just how much power he has. Because that's what a census was all about. In the, in the ancient world, a census was all about knowing how many people do we have so we can know how much money can we tax them for and how many men are available for our army if we just so happen to need them. And the Romans would do this sort of thing, take a census, about every 14 years. I've asked you this question before in years past, so you should know the answer, but do you think this was a happy or a sad time for the Jews of Jesus' day? Was, was this like, what a great excuse to go home for the holidays? There's no place like home for the holidays. It's census time and we all get to go home. Is this like one of those moments? Is this a carols and joy and festive drinks kind of time? No, it was not. This was not a joyful time for the Jews. This decree, this command was just one more painful reminder that they were not free, that they were being ruled by an evil, oppressive king who simply wanted to use them and did not care about them at all. You notice that Luke goes out of his way here to mention Quirinius. It's almost a side note. If you look in your text, it's probably in parentheses. And he does this because Quirinius was famous for a very famous census that took place where the Jews rioted and revolted because they hated the census time just that much. Luke is setting the scene for us here. He's saying this is when this story takes place. Recently, I rewatched one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a movie called Crimson 
Tide. Maybe you've seen it. It stars Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman, two of my favorites. And, and the setting is a submarine, a nuclear submarine, at the height of the Cold War. Right at the peak of the conflict between the United States and the former Soviet Union. That's the setting for this really intense sort of thriller of a movie. And the setting is what makes sense of the entire storyline. When you understand the tension of the Cold War, then you understand the tension of this moment. And that's what Luke is doing for us here today. He's giving us the setting. He's telling us when this story takes place because it matters, because it's significant. He's saying to his readers, we all understand the atmosphere here. We all know how people feel about Rome and Quirinius and a census and Caesar. But we also know this. We also know that the most powerful emperor the world has ever seen has issued a census and no one dare defy him. You see, Rome in this moment is flexing its muscles. And all around the empire, when Rome says, when Caesar says jump, the only right response is how high? Verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So again, Caesar Augustus makes a decree and the whole world scrambles to obey him. Tom Wright, the famous New Testament scholar, talks about this moment. He says this, he says, this man, this king, this absolute monarch lifts his finger in Rome and 1,500 miles away in an obscure province, a poverty-stricken couple must now undertake a hazardous journey at his whim. You see, as this story begins, it sure looks like Caesar has all the power, that he's the one calling the shots and guiding the course of history. But right here, right in this section, Luke begins to unveil something for us. He begins to unveil for us this very subtle and yet subversive storyline. This census, this decree, this act of worldly power actually sets up the birth of a certain little child in a certain little town. And to remind us who this baby is, Luke references a name. Luke's a name dropper. He'll drop this name twice in verse 4. He drops it again later in verse 11. And just to give you a clue, it's probably one of the greatest, most amazing names a person could ever, ever have. Luke and Danica, listen up. People with this name are generally smart, funny, witty, intelligent, athletic, and extraordinarily handsome. But I digress. What name does Luke want us to know is associated with this child? David. David is that name. This kid will be in the lineage of, he'll be related to David, the great Old Testament king whose ancestor, Scripture says, will someday sit on the throne of God and rule his kingdom forever. And now, because of this census, this baby will be born in the city of David. Listen to this from Micah chapter 5. This is from the Old Testament. This is prophecy about this thing that will someday happen in this place. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. You see... 
From a worldly perspective, it sure looks like Rome has all the power, like Caesar is calling the shots. But Luke wants us to know this. If we look closely and carefully and expectantly, we will find that there is a greater power at play. And because I'm in a chess mode right now, I, I've been watching a lot of things on chess. I recently, recently watched this, this show, it was sort of a documentary um, about Bobby Fischer. And Bobby Fischer was a super troubled guy. He had a lot of, of really big issues, but he was a brilliant chess player, maybe, maybe the greatest American chess player in history. At 14, he became the youngest ever U.S. champion. At 15, he became a grand Master At that time, it was the youngest grandmaster ever. And in 1972, Fisher won the World Chess Championship by defeating Boris Spassky using some of the most creative and brilliant chess ever played. People still talk about it, read about it, study it to this day. Now, here's the problem with playing someone like Bobby Fisher in chess. It's not just that they're better than you. It's that they anticipate your moves. They almost know what you're going to do before you know what you're going to do. And so they anticipate your moves and then they use your moves for their advantage against you. So no matter, so no matter what you do, it always fits into their plan. That's how great chess players play. And friends, this is what we see in the Christmas story. Caesar makes a move and it's big and it's powerful and it's bold. But God, he says, I've got a move of my own. Embedded into the story of the man king who was declared to be a God is the God king who humbled himself to be a man. Embedded into the story of the man king who declared himself to be a God is the God king who humbled himself to be a man. And friends, even though it doesn't look like it, even though to the casual observer, it looks like Caesar is calling the shots, here's the truth. God is in control. Do you know that today? Do you know that simple and yet profoundly powerful truth? God is in control. Do you know that even in 2020, God is in control? Because friends, in this world, there are Caesars and there are rulers and there are forces and there are powers acting and moving all around us. But God is always in the background. He's still in the business of making moves and counter moves in this world. He's still in the, in the business of using hard things, the unpleasant, awful census moments of your life and mine for his glory and our good. That's who our God is. Do you know that today? Do you know that our God is in control? Because friends, to live expectantly is to know that our God is never out of moves, that he always has a plan. And maybe today that truth is for you. Maybe today you're feeling pinned in or checkmated by this world that we're living in and the Christmas story comes to you in a real personal way to say this, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope because our God is never out of moves. Verse six, while they were there, while Joseph and Mary were in the city of David, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. You see, 
Now Luke is going to continue this contrast between this child and this Caesar, this redeemer and this ruler. Because kings were rich and they were born in palaces, but poor people, poor people in the ancient Near East would tear strips of cloth to wrap their babies in. And that word manger that Luke uses here, it's actually best translated feeding trough, but no one likes to sing away in a feeding trough, so we just leave it manger. But let's be very clear, this was a thing that animals ate out of. That's where Jesus is placed. That's where he's born. Verse 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Friends, we've heard this story so many times that it's normal, but the question that Luke's readers would have been asking was simply this, what kind of a birth is this for a king? I mean, this doesn't sound like a kingly birth to me because shepherds in this day, they were not highly touted members of society, especially those who worked the night shift. Their testimony was not accepted in a court of law. They were considered to be unreliable, uneducated, unsavory characters who were largely suspected of stealing sheep and doing all sorts of other illegal things. That's shepherds. And yet, in Luke's story, he highlights this fact. The message goes out. The message of Jesus' birth comes to shepherds and it was no small message we're told the glory of the lord shone around them in the old testament the glory of the lord is always a a phrase that's associated with the temple or the tabernacle and it has to do with the actual presence of god the actual presence of god has come to earth and it's descended upon of all people shepherds The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Again, here's the point. This is the story of two very different kings, one in Rome, the other in Bethlehem, one on a throne, the other in a feeding trough, one clothed with royalty, the other wrapped in rags. And friends, Luke is very clearly saying something to us here. He's very clearly telling us this. We all know how kingdom one looks. We all know how they operate. We all know about Rome's and Caesar's and how they offer only a very fleeting hope for the wise and smart and gifted and talented and beautiful and privileged people of this world. But this kid, this king, this child and his kingdom will be different. Not like the kingdoms of this world. This is a kingdom that offers great joy for All the people. This is a kingdom that reaches down and makes the God of the universe eternally available even to the shepherds of the world. And friends, in case you've missed the comparison that Luke is making here, in case you've missed the very stark contrast, listen to the claims of Emperor Gaius Octavius, Caesar Augustus, because this was common language. This was propaganda that was well known all throughout the Roman Empire. Octavius was known as the king of kings. You ever heard that before? He was often called the savior 
of the world. Does that sound familiar? In fact, there's actually an ancient Greek city where archaeologists have uncovered a stone inscription that reads, Caesar Augustus, Savior of the world. This is historical fact. History tells us that when, when his forces, when Octavius' forces would brutally defeat and take over a region or a people group, they would say the peace of Rome had come to that region. The peace of Rome be with you, they'd say. Octavius himself was known to say, my peace I give you. The peace that comes when I'm in control. The peace that comes when I'm calling the shots. The peace that's available when you put your faith and trust in me. Friends, do we know who else said that to us? Jesus, John 14. At the end of Octavius' life, statues were built to honor him. And this is right at the time of Jesus' birth, friends. All over the Roman Empire, people worshipped him. They worshipped this great Caesar Augustus by saying this, and listen very carefully because these words are historical record. Glory to Caesar in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom Caesar's favor rests. All over the known world, these words were sung and spoken and shouted. Glory to Caesar in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom Caesar's favor rests. Now, now listen to the language Luke uses here as he tells this story, because this, friends, is no accident. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host, we're out in the field again, we're with the shepherds. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Do you see, friends? This is not just a quaint, cute little story for a happy holiday season. The message of Christmas is a challenge and it's a calling to abandon your pursuit of the kingdoms of this world for a king and for a kingdom that comes with real glory and offers true peace and has eternal power. We notice here that Luke in verse 13 says, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared. That word company in Greek, it's a military word. This is an army word. Octavius, we know, had a standing army of something like 500,000 soldiers, the greatest army the world had ever known. But here in this story, the army of the living God, the forces of the Lord, the true king of kings, they aren't singing in Rome. They're in a field outside of Bethlehem proclaiming good news of great joy for all the people of the world. Friends, to live expectantly is to know that the greater king and the greater kingdom that comes with the greater power and peace and joy and hope is only available through Jesus Christ. Is only available through Jesus Christ. The kings and kingdoms of this world can never offer you what he can. And so let me ask you this Christmas season, what kingdom are you living for? What kingdom are you looking to? Is your life about getting more and more of what this world has to offer? Are you pursuing a different king? Or are you, are you diving into the Christmas story? Because here's what it says. Don't look to Rome. Don't look to the empire. Don't buy into the empty promises of Promises of worldly propaganda because there is a true king 
One who offers real peace, lasting hope, real security, joy and salvation through love and grace to all who believe. That's the Christmas message and it's available to you. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Amen.